This is an ABC podcast. Cynthia Bannum started out her working life as a lawyer and then she became a journalist, a job that turned out to be much more interesting and exciting for her. Cynthia is a pretty driven person. She's run marathons. She's covered Canberra politics. And as a foreign correspondent, she's travelled on military helicopters through the streets of Baghdad. Then in 2007, while she was on assignment for the Sydney Morning Herald in Indonesia, Cynthia was on that plane, the one that crashed at Yogyakarta Airport, killing 21 people. She suffered terrible burns and injuries and lost both her legs. This all required Cynthia to reinvent herself, to reimagine her life and career. She became an academic and then a writer, writing about international politics and human rights. And she did it with the support of her husband and her family and the greatest sporting team on the face of the planet. Hello, Cynthia. Hello, Richard. Like I said, you're a driven woman. I think you can't <laughs> deny this. You no. cannot deny this at all. Like I say, do you get that more from your mum or your dad? Uh, I think my mum definitely pushed me uh, as a child and I I think this, I was the oldest of four children and um, I think this related a lot to her upbringing as as an Italian immigrant who who came to Australia when she was nine, lost a lot of opportunities including in um, schooling and university and um, so I was always very driven when I was a student and this is something that has, has stayed with me. So perhaps she planted the seed, but I think it's also just who I am. Yeah. Was a bit, a bit of that vicarious because she was denied those opportunities? Do you think you're like my daughter will have what I did not have? Uh, I think so. Um, my mum was told as a, as a child, uh, she was really smart. She was told, you're one of the smart ones. You're going to go to university. That's when she was back in Italy living in, in Trieste. And then the family decided to migrate to Australia and uh, her parents worked in factories in Sydney, uh, tobacco factories. They um, were able to buy a house out at Campsie. They had a big mortgage and they needed help paying it off. And my mum, who was offered a scholarship um, for high school, was told she wasn't allowed to take it. Parents couldn't afford the train fares and then after a few years at high school she wasn't allowed to finish because she had to get a job to help her father pay off the mortgage. So my mum was deprived a lot of opportunities and dreams and, um, yeah, I think it, it's it's probably natural. I know being a mum myself I'm constantly finding myself um, wanting to give my son opportunities that I didn't have, for example, because, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money, couldn't afford to, um, uh, for me to learn musical instruments. And so my poor son's now learning piano and violin. And, um, and, and I hear from other people who were forced to do that as children, you know, they didn't necessarily enjoy that. And I'm like, I get that, but I would have loved to have had that opportunity. <laughs> and so I'm repeating what my mum did to me. And how did she put it to you? She was saying like, you're, you're smart, you will succeed. Was it driven into you like that? Or was it that kind of thing of the, of the, the classic thing of the migrant parents saying to the kid, you, you was, will have to do this? It was more a fear of, of getting bad marks, I think. Yeah. And the, the reaction if I, if, I, if I didn't. Yeah. My mum loves me very much. She uh, gave up everything for us kids, four kids, and, you know, she did the best she could. She did a very good job of being a mum, of giving me a really secure upbringing like my dad did. But 
you know, it it was scary sometimes. So um, it was loving and supportive but um, demanding at the same absolutely. time. Absolutely, yes. And being, you say, as the eldest of four, were you then often put in charge of your younger siblings? Were you given that kind of responsibility? Not in the same way that my father was. So my father grew up on the northern beaches and his dad uh, was abusive towards his mother and left when my father was 10 years old. My father was the eldest of four kids and my dad did end up doing that. He ended up looking after his younger siblings with the help of a kind uncle and a neighbour. And so my father reacted against his upbringing by being the most committed devoted father you can imagine. So that I think that sense of having the security and us being looked after, it didn't actually have to come from me because it was coming from from my mum and my dad. So as this driven kid in school, I'm picturing the young Cynthia with her head in a book all the time and studying all the time. Did you really cop it from other kids for being a nerdy swat? <laughs> no, look, I didn't I didn't enjoy school. I I think I really found my my people when I got to university and certainly when I got into journalism. So primary school for me was an ordeal. Why? I was really young for my year. I don't know if th- this was the reason, but I was I was bullied in year six and um, sort of, you know, was that girl who was sort of like pushed off the, the bench in the playground because the other girls didn't want to sit near me and ended up making friends with the the year below and they were the people who got me through um, primary school. So when the principal came to me at the end of year six and said, oh, we think you should repeat, I said, "Um, there is no way I'm staying at this school. I'm leaving. I'm going to high school. That was the first time I actually, I think, stood up for myself and that's where I learned a really important lesson which I've kept through through my entire life, which is when things are feeling pretty rotten, I look for how to change my circumstances by looking inside at what I can do. And I, and I left. So having gotten out of school, you went and did law. Was that because uh, you wanted to do law or was it because that was what bright kids who got high marks did? Yeah, I, I think when I got to high school, what I did find was my voice. And I found that pretty early and got into debating. And the sort of the glory year was year eight. It happened quite early when we won the Catholic schools debating competition. Didn't win again after that, but certainly I became, and in fact, the um, the words on the the, um, the yearbook at the end of year twelve were the voice of the form, um, although the reluctant voice of the form because I I kind of didn't always do didn't always perform when people wanted me to. Uh, I was um, decided what I was going to do and what I wasn't going to do. So you were um, going to be a barrister or a politician then, or something like that. It was actually vet or lawyer. Vet or lawyer, I, right. Yes. I, I loved animals and I actually did my work experience at the zoo, but uh, for whatever reason I ended up working the friendship farm. I didn't get to work with the lions, unfortunately, <laughs> which wasn't as exciting as what I thought it would be. But they, they were my two choices. And I think it was the, look, it was the debating, being driven academically that sort of yeah, pushed me towards the, the legal career. So you do all that, you do all that study. And you do spend a long time at uni doing yes. law and you go into the law and then you realised, oh, my God, this is not for me. What was it that made you decide the law was not for you? I think up until that point I had always done what I thought I should do and what I thought I should do was law. And when I got out of College of Law, you know, so it was like, you know, six six plus years of study, 
I worked in an um, insurance law firm. So I was lo- working Sorry, in Sorry, I like... just got nodded <laughs> off then. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, I mean, I was... It, it, it was... It was not fulfilling work. I mean, I got to go and argue in the Dust Diseases Tribunal, the asbestos sort of litigation, and while I enjoyed being able to argue a point in that high-pressure situation with the judge on the bench, I did like that. It was, you know, the subject matter that I was dealing with um, just wasn't fulfilling me. I, I think I have... I'm driven, my husband says, by a sense of moral outrage and, and I think that had led me into law. I was one of those people who, as a high school student, used to write letters um, arguing for Amnesty International, arguing for the release of political prisoners. Like, that is what drove me. And I wasn't finding that in law. And it could have been that I ended up just in the wrong area of law because that's where the jobs were. But I knew that there there had to be more um, to life. And so I, I took this sort of brave decision. I think it was brave when I was 24 just to... Um, quit and turn my back on the law and I signed up for a, uh, a a trip in Tibet in the Himalayas and um went off on my own and with a with a, a ticket um and a working visa for England and just thought I'll just go and figure it out over there. And what how did you figure it out over there? When I was in in England I I had to support all my travel by working and so I did end up taking paralegal jobs in London. But I did sign up for a creative writing course. Unfortunately, the teacher got a job writing for TV and the, the course never finished. But it was uh, while doing that that I actually did have an epiphany I, because I can remember working. Um, I, was, I was in the office of this law firm in London and writing to a friend back home saying, I figured it out. I, I want to write. That's what I want to do. And once I'd figured that out, I was ready to come home and get on with it. And getting on with it meant journalism for you rather than becoming a writer of fiction or, or history or something like that? I thought I'll go and do some postgraduate studies in, in writing and it was, it, was, it was either going to be creative writing or journalism. And I think once again that more pragmatic side of me kicked in saying, well, there's, you know, it's probably easier to get a job that pays in journalism. And back in those days, you know, that was still a thing. And did you want an exciting life too? Was that I part did. Of it? Yeah. And travelling had already awakened um, a, a, a love of the world, this sort of wanting to travel and wanting to roam and and I think once I got into journalism, I, I very quickly, I remember being at the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney and being told, if you want to be a foreign correspondent, you need to go to Canberra. Right. You began by doing the legal rounds, didn't you, for the SMH? I did. And then were sent to Canberra. How did the attacks in America on September 11, 2001, change that beat for you? The Attorney General's round was was a quiet round when I when I took it on. Not a lot was happening. It was like law profession reform, and then September 11 happened, and suddenly, it was thrust onto the front page every day. There were um, terrorism was the number one issue, and it was all about uh, changes to ASIO laws at the time. Yeah, and, all these national um, security laws went sailing through the Parliament uh, very very quickly, as I recall. Well, they they did, but it was really interesting having that legal background and being able to um, argue the the cases for civil liberties at the time, which is what I was doing. Where you actually feel like here's an important, we need to be talking about the impact on civil liberties and getting that 
into every story rather than, you know, just glossing over it. And that's where I was able to, I think, use those skills that I had studied for so they didn't all feel wasted. So um, was it hard to write about that? Because I recall at the time there wasn't much patience with that kind of wasn't, uh, questioning no. about what are the civil liberties aspects and, of this and, and there weren't many people in Parliament who were willing to um, to talk to you about that sort of stuff. And so there were a couple of times where I'd get a call to go down to an office of someone who would never normally talk to someone like me as a junior journalist but knew that they had a sympathetic ear and um, and that I was, you know, taking it seriously and, and, and that was the kind of journalism that I was interested in. So then you were put on the foreign desk. Where did they send you to begin with? I was a foreign affairs and defence correspondent. I mean, quite often I would be going with uh, a minister, a uh, defence minister, foreign minister, prime minister around the region, East Timor, Solomon Islands, um, PNG. I was unexpectedly interested in the defence side of things because that sort of wasn't why I wanted to do that round. But I, I did find that while I was, I never wanted to be um, a soldier myself, I really loved that license that being a journalist gave you to sort of say, I'm, I'm really keen to, you know, to, to see how um, your submarine program is, is, is working. Can you get me on a submarine? And then I, and that would be able, defence department would be able to do that. And so I, I definitely used that role to tell stories, but also to satisfy this, um, you know, this desire I had just to live and experience the world. But in doing so, I was always looking for the, the human stories and, um, I, I loved that work. It, it was the first time I think I had ever really found my calling. It felt so right. For the first time in my life, I felt like I had found who I wanted to be. So I've been present at the sort of the aftermath of a bloodless revolution. That was great. But it sounds to me like the kind of thing you were doing was always going to drag you closer and closer to a war at some point and to fighting and that kind of thing. To be perfectly honest, if I was in your shoes at the time, I'd be very, very frightened of that. Was that something that you felt or did you feel differently about that? I, I wasn't frightened. I really wasn't. I um, I couldn't wait to get out there and was always looking for, for chances to get overseas and to get into interesting situations. I mean, the closest I, I think I got uh, was, you know, going with Brendan Nelson to um, Afghanistan and, and Iraq when, when the war was on and, you know, being sort of dressed in bulletproof vests and flown in a Hercules into, you know, the Arisgan province and, and then, um, you know, being on the, the Black Hawks in Main Street of Baghdad being shot at as you're, you know, flying down the street. I was surrounded by SAS and I always, that always made me feel very safe. But I actually wrongly, as it turned out, felt like as a journalist you had this sort of layer of protection around you, like, you know, that just the job meant that, you know, you weren't a player, you were an observer yeah. and, and that gave you this kind of safe distance. There's some ISIS warriors over there. It's okay, I'll show them my press card and they'll be, they'll be fine. The SAS will protect mm, me. Yeah. Yeah. As I recall at the time, I remember Australian journalists were infuriated. They would see that their, their American colleagues would be sort of embedded on missions and they were given a lot of latitude and there was way more openness yes. uh, amongst the Americans about how they went about their operations, whereas the Australian operations and the Defence yes. Department covered everything in these layers and layers and layers of what they thought was absolute, absurdly unnecessary secrecy. Was that your it's experience? It's so true. It's so true. And, and, and it was with anything that I was writing about. It didn't just have to be war, anything to do with defence or foreign affairs. But obviously it became much more um, sort of extreme around around war. I always felt 
a great uh, sense of frustration that as a journalist you were always, you know, number one suspect and um, didn't even treat you like a like a, a genuine human being. You, you were just kind of this threat that needed to be guarded against. And then, so there was, look, I was never long enough in the job to be able to to really infiltrate some of those situations, go off on my own and just say, right, I've, I've had enough of, you know, working through the, you know, the official channels, I'm going off on my own. I never got the chance. Um, I was in it for such a short time. But what I did find was that by by focusing on the human stories, I, I got a level of respect. For example, when I covered the Sea King trial, which was a really profound experience for me. There was a, a crash of a seeking helicopter in uh, near in Indonesia, and covering the trial on the on the inquiry on the first day. You know, I was you know no one wanted to talk to me, but I soon found that with sticking at a story with my reporting and trying to build rapport with with some of the, the not only the families but also the people inside defence actually build up a trust and was able to get to the heart of stories because, I mean, that's what people are really interested in. Really, it's, it's, it's the people's stories. And I found that by focusing on that, sometimes it could actually really annoy the government. So I did the same thing in immigration stories and actually that really got up their nose because that was a time when the government, these were post-Tampa days, didn't want people to be sympathetic to those kind of stories. But I was writing them. And because I thought that was a way in to get people to understand what the issues were about. And so I transferred those, that kind of approach to, to defence. And I did find that I started building those relationships and started being given access to bases and, and to people. And, and I was doing a good job and I was loving it. Yeah, that old, it reminds me of that old saying, it was, I'm paraphrasing here, Lord Northcliffe who said that journalism is when you're writing about something somewhere that someone in power doesn't want you to know and everything else is just publicity. Yeah. <laughs> this round about this time you met your husband, Michael. How did you meet him? Yeah, so he was working for the Melbourne Herald Sun. I was working for the Sydney Morning Herald, both in Canberra reporting for our papers and... Um, Senator Amanda Vanstone uh, used to have these regular barbecues of Coopers and Cranksky in the Senate courtyard, being a South Australian. She was promoting the South Australian beer. We journalists used to go down there and, and I remember this year was um, a bit of a seminal year for me, 2003. I, you know, just got my first mortgage. <laughs> it was, I was growing up. And I was with a bunch of uh, colleagues and, and I just announced this is the year that I'm going to do a marathon. And the group of people around me sort of said, oh, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll be in that. And uh, there was only really one person who kind of took that challenge seriously and, and started training and, you know, I was doing my training, he was doing his. Some of it we did together. The guy who ran the parliament gym put us a, a program together and uh, we ended up running the Sydney Marathon in 2003 and by... It, it was um, a slow burn by the time the marathon came around. I knew I was in love. Are you saying, um, so, so you were at a barbecue and you said, I'm going to run a marathon and everyone did an I am Spartacus type thing. I will run a marathon. No, I will run a marathon. I will. And he was the only other guy who actually did. This that's is, right. This, he, yeah. was, he was the guy that that's did right. that. That's right. And it was right. a slow burning thing, the two of yeah. you, at the end of that. Yes. So with all that, you must have felt like everything was really coming together with your life. You're in the right job, the right place, but a lovely Absolutely. man, all these things. The next thing was I, I wanted to get a foreign posting and, and um, I wanted a partner who would um, look after my children when I had them so that I could keep working in these jobs that I wanted to work and didn't get there. 
So 2007, there was the plane crash. What was the reason you were sent to Indonesia and why were you on that plane? It was really just to get some time with a foreign minister. Sometimes the, um, the only time you could get for those really long interviews was on a plane. And uh, I, so I, I was offered this, this spot on Foreign Minister Alexander Downer's plane. Um, he was uh, doing some interfaith uh, kind of work in Jakarta, so we, we went to Jakarta first of all, but there wasn't, um, you know, enough space on the plane to go to Jakarta because there were a sort of bunch of dignitaries travelling with him. And so I had to, yeah, I, I had to get a, just a, you know, commercial plane. And, um, yeah, unfortunately um, there was a, there was a crashed on landing and um, I know you hate talking about that day, and understandably so, but suffice it to say, pilots misjudged the landing, the plane crashed in an embankment, and you escaped from the wreckage and were eventually flown to Perth, to the hospital there. You had terrible burns, and you lost your both your legs, and you were in an induced coma to have all those operations. Do you remember having a kind of a sense of was there ever a sense of like I, I will survive this, or was there? Were you just sort of taking it day by day? Um, I was still scared when uh, I came out of the coma because I knew that an infection had nearly taken my life um, on multiple occasions, and so I, I was really scared that it was going to come back. Um, so I wasn't sure that I was going to survive, but I think being in that burns unit with that sort of round-the-clock care and I was so lucky to have Fiona Wood as my surgeon. She made me feel safe. She made me feel like I was going to make it. And so, yes, I still had some really dark days where, you know, they would suddenly be bringing up all these bags of these new antibiotics and, you know, there were black bags and sort of above me and I had all this sort of, you know, intravenous lines going into me because, you know, that infection was... And so there were those sort of scary, those scary moments, but I think... So um, were, they, were they going up the scale of antibiotics? They were, Right, yeah. and what, that ends up at vancomycin, I think, at the very top yes, of the tree, doesn't it? Yes. So, so that was you watching them wheel in a new antibiotic? And and that was quite terrifying, but I I really did build this sense that that as long as Fiona was there I was I was going to be I was going to be okay I had a lot of faith in her she's an incredible human being every time she came in to see me it was just like this sort of sigh the sense of relief that you know she's here it's going to be all right and I think um I was determined not to die I do remember feeling that as everything was happening to me but coming out of a coma you're on this sort of high of having survived and I do remember being on that high in the beginning that almost like, oh, wow, you know, God, let me live, you know, that there must be a reason for this. But that, those drugs wear off very quickly and there were some extreme sort of drugs, ketamine and whatever else they had me on and as they, they come off and you come down, that's, that's when the fear sets in and also the, oh, my God, how am I going to live like this? And so it was, um, it was a terribly emotionally difficult time. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't sleep. I was, um, you know, I was having terrible visions. You know, I went through, I went through all of that. So I, I think it was, it was such a confusing time. 
but Fiona did bring with her a, a sort of a sense of security. I, you know, I had a catastrophic accident once. It was nothing like yours, nowhere near as bad. But it was very, very painful and frightening. But there was always a part of me in my head, and this is a really strange thing to talk about, but part of me in my head was going, this is really interesting what's going on as well. Like I was frightened, but part of me was always going, this is interesting. And I was kind of curious about what was going on. You, was there a bit like a bit of that in your voice, in your head as well? Definitely not. No, I, I, I was just, I was devastated and I was just angry. And um, the things that gave me hope in those days were the things that actually took me out of what was happening to me so that I didn't have to think about what was happening to me at all. And um, I have, I found it very difficult for a very long time. Even I could never have even had this conversation for for years and years after after it happened because I think I, I was looking for ways to distract myself from what happened. So, for example, Michael was uh, an incredible person to have in my life at that time. I, I had a routine where my mum was the only person I wanted to see in the day. The change of dressings in the morning was like the worst part of the day. The pain was unbelievable. And my mum would come in and she would have bought a soup for me and she would just sit with me in that aftermath of those dressings. And I didn't want anybody else around me at that time except my mum. I think you just go back to just something really childlike and and she was just the person who I wanted. But in the evenings it was, it was Michael and that's when I returned to being the adult and Michael would come in and he would talk about the life that we were going to have together. And he was incredibly forward-looking and hopeful and he believed in me and he believed, um, you know, he knew that I, I wanted to have a family but he wasn't willing to talk about it before the crash. But um, now he was and, he, you know, he, he knew that's what I needed and, and he gave me the belief in that, that I would have a life as an adult you know, that I wasn't just reduced to this infantile state that I felt like because, you know, I, I had lost my legs and I'd lost, I just, I'd lost so much. And and so it was that, it was that kind of that distraction and that, that, yeah, that, that, that let me keep going. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Today I'm with Cynthia Bannum, who is an academic, a journalist and a writer. In 2007, while working as a foreign affairs and defence correspondent, Cynthia was on board a plane which crashed in Indonesia. Cynthia suffered truly awful injuries, severe burns, and she lost both her legs. You were telling us before about being in hospital in Perth, Cynthia. Tell me how Australian rules football came to be an important part of your recovery. So our our Friday nights were when we, we got a little bit of our old lives back and, and we, what would happen was the nurses would drag in the television, um, we would turn on the footy. We were living in Perth so football was everything and as I got better and I was able to eat something, that would let us order in a pizza. So we would have a pizza and the football on a Friday night together and th- that just saved me. It really did. Why? It, what was so lovely? I mean, I th- I've got my own ideas about what's lovely about <laughs> watching watching football, but, but what? How, how was it for you? I could, like I still can now, I could lose myself in the game. In the complexity of it or the passion of it? I, I think the, the athleticism of it, you know, I was a runner 
before this happened to me um, and that's why I think the game appealed to me. There's a lot of running in Australian rules football but it was also early on I'd, I'd chosen the team, the Swans, because when I first met Michael he is a sports freak and, and just loves every sport going and I knew that for the sake of our relationship I had to choose a sport. And so I tried cricket and he sat me down on the beach one day and tried to explain the rules to me and I just couldn't go there. I just couldn't understand. I said, no, no, it's not going to be cricket. What about football? Love, love the way it's played. Okay, we, we can make this one work. Chose my team because I was from Sydney. It was natural to choose the Swans. So that became something that we shared. So it was a shared pursuit as well, something that I had with Michael and I think, yeah, that was a part of the appeal. Given that you were in Perth, the home of the West Coast Eagles, and the Swans famously defeated the West Coast Eagles by a couple of points in the classic 2005 grand final when leaping Larry Leo Barry had that mark in the final dying moments of the game, saving the game and winning the first premiership for the Swans in 72 years, which created enormous bitterness in Perth at the yes. time. I'm sure the medical staff put all that to one side. Yeah. And, or did you feel you needed to conceal your support for the, no, the Swans at It that was point? definitely a time when that rivalry with West Coast was at its peak. Um, it but it intense. kind of made it, like, it, it made it fun because I was surrounded by West Coast and Frio supporters. But, I mean, one thing that the Swans did early on when I was in the Burns unit was one of Michael's best friends in Melbourne wanted to do something for me in the early days and actually wrote or called the club and said, you know, my friend has had this happen to her, is there anything you can do? And and the Swans organised a signed Guernsey which they sent into the hospital room. And so when that arrived, I was blown away. I would have been a rusted on Swan supporter anyway from that day forward if all the stuff that happened afterwards didn't happen. I was just so it, it was it was hard to explain actually to to friends who wanted to know why it was I couldn't engage with them in these really, really dark days. Why why I couldn't do that and yet I could lose myself in football. And 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 I think that there was a very good reason for that. With football, I didn't have to think about what happened to me at all. My friends, they knew me as the person who who was before the crash and I wasn't ready yet to go there and to be reminded of who I was and who I was now. That was so hard for me. I could lose myself in football and the Swans and, and I did and it became so it incredibly important to me. It was perfect escapism. It was escapist. Yes, it was. Around about this time, your husband proposed to you. What did he tell you about the first time he proposed to you? I was always keener than, than Michael was on getting married um, before the crash happened and he knew that. Um, he was slow to the party. When I was in the coma, it was, uh, I think it was the night when um, actually they thought I was going to die. Um, they'd done everything they could. They'd done the last amputation. And my family was like saying goodbye. You know, they were coming to say goodbye and, and Michael came in and sat down with me and um, and proposed to me. And he uh, said a tear ran down my face when he did it. And the way he describes it was this incredible energy suddenly filled the room. He, he says it was he says it was a light. And he's not a very religious man. I mean, he's you know, he's Christian, but he's he's not overly religious and not given to talking about miracles. He felt this incredible presence in the room and he said at that moment he knew I was going to live. 
when I came out of the coma, he didn't tell me that he proposed <laughs> and that I'd said, you know, yes, with my tear. Um, he made me work for it. <laughs> <laughs> How long again before you actually, when he said it to you, when you were actually, actually conscious? <laughs> it's a long time. It didn't happen until we were back in camera, actually. <laughs> made me wait. So daily life in recovery, was that a bad time? Be, I suppose you had a sense of getting better, but... It was really hard. Yeah. yeah, it was really hard. I mean, I'd also broken my back so I couldn't sit up for three months and uh, they had to make a back brace for me to be able to go in the wheelchair to be able to get outside of, of the hospital, which which was a big moment, you know, the first day that I was able to go outside and breathe fresh air and sit up again. I mean, every day, like, you know, physio and OT, it was incredibly painful. I had, you know, amazing people around me, amazing professionals around me who made it as positive as as they could but it was it was intense pain, emotional and physical. God, it's amazing when you get out of hospital, though, isn't it? You feel the breeze. You realise I haven't felt the breeze on my face in a very long time. Yes, until the people started lighting up their cigarettes <laughs> out the front of the hospital. Was like, <laughs> so tell me about the day. The day you went out from the hospital, you were in your wheelchair, you were with your family, and Michael was there and the phone rang. Michael's phone rang. Tell me about that phone call, please. I was actually um, having a pretty dark day. So we would go down to the park... Um, down the road from the hospital and I would be covered in blankets and Michael would be pushing the wheelchair and my father would be in front of me terrified that I was going to hit a bump and, you know, it was going to re-break my spine and and it was just a really careful caravan, very sort of sad going down down the street and until we got to this sort of first patch of green and so Michael takes this call and it was Paul Ruse. Ruse. (laughs) Yeah. And for Michael, I mean, Rusey was like a hero, an absolute hero, because Michael was a Fitzroy supporter and loved Paul Ruse. And so to have him on the other end of the phone was pretty amazing. But he had to say to Rusey that day, Cynthia, I'm sure would love to talk to you, but, you know, can you call back? Because today's, you know, not the day. And Rusey said, sure. He said, we just want to do something for Cynthia. And so couple of days passed and and I was in the hospital and I was being wheeled off to get an MRI scan and the phone rang again and Michael had passed me the phone and said, it's Rusey. I was, um, I mean, I think the whole Sydney Swans things, it, it sort of makes me quite childlike, I think, when I have those experiences with the team. I'm still like quite in awe of them and and it, and it is a, I, I, I get more, uh, of that sort of over overwhelmed by the, the stars of the swans than I would by, you know, anybody um, from any other um, sort of field of life. So but you can be in a press conference with the President of the United States and exactly. Xi Jinping and that would be one thing. But, exactly. But being in a room with, you know, Adam Goods and Paul Ruse or someone like Reduces that. Reduces me right. to a, yeah, right. to a, um, a sort of a quivering child. <laughs> but Ruse, I, I do remember the first conversation with him because I I was really keen to tell him for whatever reason, Rusey, I used to I used to run marathons before this happened to me, and um, I'm not going to be able to do that anymore. And he said to me, he said, "Just think about what you can do. Don't think about what you can't do." And I said, "Well, I can I can swim and I can kayak." And he said, "Well, let's think about that." And and. I did. I mean, they're, they're the things that I, they are my, my, um, that's how I keep fit now. Um, kayaking, swimming, rowing. 
but that was something that I really needed to hear that day. And from that moment on, like, Rizzi never stopped. Um, he's just never stopped calling to check in on me. He, he did last week, you know, 15 years later. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was kind of the start of my relationship with the club. And then there was your birthday lunch. At Cottesloe Beach. Yeah, he wanted um, he wanted a surprise. He wanted to surprise me for my birthday and the, the Swans were playing West Coast. Um, and so he rang Michael and said, we want to take Cynthia out to lunch. You know, do you think she would be up for that? And by the time my birthday came around, I was in the rehab hospital. Yeah, they organised this lunch for me. And, you know, when I turned up in my wheelchair and my Burns garments, um, you know, just a sort of a a shadow of, of who I was before, but but there I was surrounded by these huge footballers, Adam Goods, Brett Kirk, Craig Bolton and Paul Ruse, and they threw me a birthday lunch and it was unbelievably special. It was um Those beautiful men did that for you. Those lovely, lovely men did that. Yeah, it was amazing. And, uh, you know, they, they've all stayed in my life since. They weren't just fly-by-nighters, you know, they, they were in for the long haul, the Swans. So now you're the number one ticket holder for the Sydney Swans. I was in 2019. 2019. Yes. Yeah. And you tossed the coin. I did. On the ground. Yes. Wow. Yeah. What was that like? I was, like with everything that the, the Swans have ever given to me, it was always like a shock, like, would you like to, you know, do the coin toss? And I was like, are you serious? Like, how amazing. Yes, of course. And you know, and I was really excited and I was determined to walk that day and not take the wheelchair out onto the, the field. Like I really wanted to, um, I, wanted, I wanted to walk out onto the grass, onto the ground. And this this place, the SCG, that has kind of become quite sacred to me, you know, it's it's um, a happy place and, and it is a sacred space for me. Yeah, so it was um, going to be a wonderful experience. You mentioned there how your sense of yourself changed really profoundly after the crash, as of course it, it did. Did you feel like you had to shift, like you were once Cynthia the lawyer and then Cynthia the journalist and then I suppose taken out of completely out of your hands, you were Cynthia the crash survivor. Did you want to get past that too, evolve into something well beyond that? Absolutely. And, you know, for a long time that's why I just, you know, I didn't want to go there. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to write about it. I found another way to distract myself. I started a PhD and I think um, a big part of that was just so I just didn't have to think about what had happened to me. And um, the PhD was a great experience. I had a wonderful supervisor, Hilary Charlesworth, who was an amazing woman to, to work with. And that was a great time in my life, being a part of, of a new world. My husband says that I, I like to um, upend things. I like change. I thrive on change. And, and I absolutely do. And here I was in a familiar, the familiar place of reinventing myself yet again. And so a part of that came naturally to me anyway. What was your PhD thesis on? So I, I looked at the responses of liberal democracies to allegations by their own citizens that they were tortured in the war on terror after September 11. And, and that came out of really reporting on, on Guantanamo Bay um, and me being interested in how liberal democracies responded differently so you mean Australia, Canada, the UK That's and right. others as yes. well to, yeah. to allegations by They're citizens right. from our country, these countries yes. that officials from the United States, from the military or That's CIA right. had employed enhanced interrogation exactly. techniques yes. against their own citizens. 
you mentioned there right from the start you always had this interest in human rights. Yes. But I, I wonder if your experience of agony informed your, your thinking on that. Look, if it did, it wasn't conscious. I can honestly say. I mean, I, I can understand why people might think that. At the time, I the ANU had offered me a journalist in residence position because I'd done my Masters of International Relations there and, and they wanted to help me out. And when I was working there in that environment, I was still doing some journalism. I just, I was looking at PhD students around me and, and I thought, you know, that, oh, I can do this. I can do this too. And I, and I had to find a topic. And to be honest, I just, I looked for the, the, the kind of the puzzle, the conundrum that had puzzled me most as a journalist. And, and it was the way liberal democracies purport to be the upholders of these democratic freedoms and yet their behaviour can um, be very hypocritical and that was what really drove me to to choose that that question. So reading about the torture for me was was the hardest part and I didn't enjoy doing that and I certainly didn't focus on that. I was more interested in in how civil society, when it gets mobilised, can force governments to change policies and laws. That's what my interest was. You mentioned there that uh, you were kind of keener on marriage and you brought Michael around into an extraordinary moment. You've got kids now too. Was that always part of the plan for you? Yeah, I've got a, um, a son who's 10. I, I think... Uh, I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm I'm writing a new uh, a new book. It's about it's actually turned out to be about mothering and mothering with a disability. So I have actually done a lot of thinking about this and um, and reflecting back. I think in my twenties, having had that really strict Catholic upbringing, I think I was um, you know terrified of the idea of pregnancy and getting in the way of my ambitions and and I was sort of I was late to the party um so it was sort of by the time I was in my early 30s and I was on this you know big career trajectory um that I realized like time was running out and that's when I you know I wanted to find the husband who was going to look after the kids while I had them but I wanted a child and actually when I came out of the coma one of the first questions I said to Fiona Wood who I asked her was am I going to be able to have children? And she said, oh, I don't see any reason why not. And that became a very big focus for me was, you know, uh, building this family. It was a part of the life that I saw coming out of the ashes, I suppose. And, um, you know, and Michael supported me in, in that. And um, I had to go through a lot of therapy and it was a while before, you know, I had a child. It was, it was difficult. I discovered I had endometriosis. We had to use IVF. But we had this um, little boy who, um, you know, seemed like an absolute miracle who made our family and, you know, is, um, is a really big reason why I can honestly say that, you know, even though it is really difficult living um, as I do now with all my injuries and disabilities, I have a wonderful life because I have this amazing family, a really supportive husband and a beautiful a beautiful boy. You have a voice too. How do you think your interest in your mum's story? Because you told me just before we, we we spoke that you were writing a book about this. How do you think your interest in your mum's story feeds into your understanding of what's happened to you? So when I submitted the PhD, I opened a box of letters people had sent to me when I was in hospital, which I couldn't read 
before that time. Seven years had passed. At the same time, I opened a box of documents from my mum's parents that I'd always wanted to come back to and, and look at their stories of what happened to them. It sort of an alchemy kind of happened, I suppose, that these two stories came together for me and I was able to see the connections in terms of the interrupted lives in my family's history, that Italian sort of heritage that I have become quite sort of fixated on and in trying to make sense of my own interrupted life. And so that came together in in that book by looking at my grandfather's experiences in World War II as a as a, a prisoner of the of the Germans after the Italian signed the armistice and my mum's own interrupted life. And I and I could see this sort of um, you know, this this sort of pattern of of just life not working out the way you see for yourself, but what you do with that. And so the the current book that I'm working on, I took a different story from my mum's mother's side of the family where my great grandmother was I discovered an abandoned child and I started looking at what had what had led. I looked for the mother who'd abandoned her, which is very difficult to do in, in, in Italy with sort of secrecy laws, and I looked for what had led her to make that decision to abandon her daughter and how that then changed all of the, our lives who came after. And and I think I my my sort of obsession, if you like, with, with this Italian heritage is really has become a way of me trying to make sense of of what's happened to me. So what I'm interested in now is is mothering with a disability. I was saying to you earlier also that, you know, it took me a very long time even to be able to talk about disability. I used to just talk about my injuries. I couldn't even see myself in, in this way as, as being a woman with disability, let alone a mother with disability. And 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 this has been, you know, really hard. There have been times where I haven't felt worthy of being a mother because I couldn't be the mother that I wanted to be. And so once again, I'm using these, uh, these stories from my heritage of, of these, these lives that didn't work out as they were meant to work out as a way to try and make sense of the life that I have been given. Your interrupted life. Yes. Like your mum had an interrupted life, like your grandfather had an interrupted life. As you were saying this, I was just thinking it was probably a lot more common throughout history for people to have interrupted lives. Most people's lives were interrupted by one thing or another, by war or tragedy, disaster, starvation, revolution or whatever. Maybe it's just a kind of an illusion of all these years of peace and prosperity as Australians, you know, that we most of us know, not all of us, but most of us know, that we think it's unusual to have an, an interrupted life. That's right. But but thinking about it in that way, which I don't think comes naturally, like that isn't the way we normally frame no, it's um, not, lives it? at all. There is a sense of comfort that I have drawn from seeing my interrupted life as being how people's lives have always been because then I think you don't feel so alone and you don't feel so isolated in your own trauma and it, it can feel like that idea of why me, why did it happen to me, why was I singled out, like that can be such a paralysing feeling to have and, and, and on my darkest days I'll have those, those thoughts. It's really important to be able to find another way to think about the traumas that happen to you because you live long enough and everyone is going to go through something difficult, some challenge at some point in their life. Mine was very big and it happened when I was 34. 
but it um it does help to reframe how you how you look at those difficult yeah things that happen to you holy cow what an amazing conversation it's been great speaking with you Cynthia thank you so much thank you Richard abc.net.au slash conversations is our website I'm Richard Feidler thanks for listening you've been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.